Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Seriously Risky Business. I'm Adam Boileau. Today's episode is brought to you by Gigamon uh, and their pre-cryption observability solution for that pesky encrypted traffic. I'm joined, as always, by Tom Uren. How's it going, Tom? Good, Adam. How are you? Yeah, I'm also. I'm doing doing good. It seems weird to me that there was a time before ransomware. Like, the, like what did we do on Risky Biz before ransomware? Like, I, I don't know what we talked about. Um, I mean, I guess Stuxnet, perhaps? But there was a time, and you've waded in this week into ransomware again. And it's about 10 years since ransomware started to become a thing. And the way that it has shaped InfoSec, you know, just the ways that we think about cyber risks, like nothing else really has come close in the way that ransomware has to making it real. And it's weird reading a paragraph that talks about, you know, Common Garden Citrix bugs as an entry point and nine billion dollars worth of ust bills in the same paragraph uh so tell us a little bit about the misfortunes of uh, icbc this week yeah so i often don't write about ransomware because there's just so much of it there is, but this yeah. week there were a couple of incidents that really uh, i guess stuck their head above the parapet for me so the first one the industrial and commercial bank of china um, its U.S. financial services arm was hit by ransomware. It sounds like it was actually pretty serious. They didn't have corporate email. They were prevented from settling treasury trades, and so they buy and sell treasuries, U.S. treasuries, on behalf of people. It was so bad they suggested that they physically carry over a USB stick <laughs> full of their <laughs> trades, and uh, like. This is, this is like pretty pretty bad. So apparently they settled on some other solution. By the end of the day, they owed the Bank of New York Mellon $9 billion in, in unsettled <laughs> trades. And so that they required that money to be sent from their Chinese parent company. So $9 billion US dollars, like that... <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot of money to have sloshing around and to not be able to like for it to not be sloshing because you know some ransomware gang and i think what we heard lockbit was that yeah the, the people yeah who so the story up? is it's lockbit they're going around taking advantage of a citrix netscaler um vulnerability that was patched in sort of mid early october yeah, this was the like session hijacking one that we've seen plenty of, of gangs of ransomware crews yeah. out there using. Yeah, yeah. So Kevin Beaumont has a post where he says the ICBC breached by Lockbit, and that's confirmed based on a letter that Reuters saw from the US Treasury. So when it's $9 billion, that got raised by US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen with the Chinese Vice Premier He Lifeng. It's reached essentially the, I don't know, I guess there's one higher level diplomatically as as if (laughs) Biden raises it with Xi, but pretty much, you know, almost as high as it can go. That's one of those like that escalated quickly kind of situations, (laughs) isn't it? (laughs) It it also strikes me as incredible that, um, you know, if they had said, hey, can you just spot us $9 billion the day before, people would have gone, no. But they go, can you spot us $9 billion because ransomware? They go, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Just pay it back as quick as you can. <laughs> oh, dear. That's, that's, yeah, that's a lot of money. 
Do you think Lockbit are the dog that caught the car in this particular case? Like, are they have they bitten off too I mean, much here? <laughs> well, so that's one of the things I wonder about. And um, it seems to me that Chinese officials will have a lot more luck with Russian law enforcement than US officials will. Well, I guess we should move on to DP World Australia. They're a Middle Eastern, I guess, logistics company, and they run in Australia at ports, 40% of the international traffic is handled by DP World Australia. And they also suffered a ransomware attack on Friday. And so the Australian government now has this process. This is the second time they've run it where they organise a whole of government response uh, that grew out of the COVID pandemic. So there's this mechanism that you get state governments and the federal government. They're basically all in on trying to mitigate the problems. And so by Saturday morning, that mechanism was enacted and we've got a national cybersecurity coordinator. And basically the message is that if you're critical infrastructure and you have a cybersecurity incident, there's kind of two sides of the coin. One side is you'll get really a lot of help from the federal <laughs> from government. From the government, here to help, as always, yes. <laughs> That's right. And the, the flip side of that is the kind of terrifying, there's there's going to be no secrets. Yes. Like if, <laughs> if, your, if your security was terrible and subpar, we're going to find out and you're going to be made an example of. <laughs> um, so I think... Uh, like, you know, this is quite a strong incentive. And I think it's pretty clear at this point for any critical infrastructure provider that that's that's the way it'll be if something like yeah, this happens. it would be a pity if you had to receive our help kind of situation. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, that's by no means an explicit goal of the arrangement, but I think it's an implicit, uh, I would call it a benefit, um, there's a quote from one of the managers, maybe the CEO of DP Worlds Australia, who was who said, uh, we didn't know if we were critical infrastructure, but we rang up anyway. <laughs> we, we got in touch with the government. And here we are. And so the, the result of this process is that they are back to being operational, what, a few days now, a few days after the initial incident? Yeah, so they, they stopped Friday at 10 a.m., and so it stopped traffic out of the ports. Uh, I guess the land side shipment of containers stopped. So they could still unload them. <laughs> they were unloading them. They just weren't getting them out of the port. And by Monday morning, they started again. So that strikes me as like pretty... That, that is, that's a pretty rapid turnaround. Yeah, yeah. So I think part of it was self-inflicted in the sense that they stopped to disconnect things. Um, so presumably it, it wasn't riddled with ransomware and fully encrypted. And so they had disconnected from the internet to prevent further damage. So it seems like, in a way, that seems like a good response, right? Is this what success looks like against big critical critical infrastructure ransomware? Should this kind of thing not even happen in Australia anymore? Like, should the Hound release have prevented Australia being a target in this way? Or is this success? (laughs) I think that's a great question. Um, So it feels to me too much to call it success like that feels like, <laughs> but it does seem like a near miss doesn't it um and so i don't think that hound release will stop ransomware the big splashy announcements uh like the fbi took down hive and yeah. so you know the hive website 
you know, seized by the FBI. There's a huge press release. Um, that's great. I like reporting on those. Those are entertaining stories. But at the same time, all the ransomware people and affiliates move on to different ransomware. So I think the most successful types of disruption would be ones that occur silently. So before that announcement, Hive was being silently kiboshed in that their keys were being given out. Presumably, maybe they were also giving companies warning about who was being targeted and at what stage it was. You know, this kind of incident is maybe like the thing that you would eventually label as a success. Like Mm -hmm. the hypothetical is uh, we knew about Lockbit. We knew they were targeting DP World. We got in touch. They stopped the attack before it did too much damage. But in stopping the attack, there's three days of downtime. Now, if that were the case, (laughs) in my internal government reports, if I was writing from ASD, I would say, this is a massive success. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know at all if that happened. No, Probably but I mean, that's, we can imagine that scenario. Like, it seems like a believable thing, whether or not it went down like that, who knows. But yeah. part of the job of the government is around confidence, right? It's about making an environment where people are confident to do business, confident to go about their lives, don't feel threatened. And, like, is if the hound release is very subtle and not <laughs> visible and doesn't have that kind of confidence-enhancing aspect to it like can it be successful like does does it need some big splashy you know we threw someone off a bridge in st petersburg kind of success (laughs) or are we are we forever destined to only ever have you know internal government reports that say we had a success and the rest of us just have to sit here and hope that it's working and that this is what success looks like i was really interested uh when patrick did that show at the nsa collaboration center rob joyce said that the Words to the effect of that the FBI is doing a fantastic job. Ransomware would be, and I think he said 10x, 10 times worse if it weren't for the FBI. <laughs> and so I guess there's, there is, and I think you point this out rightly, there is a tension between doing what is most effective, which I think is the silent, ongoing, long-term disruption, yeah. versus you would, what You is, would, though, being a spook. <laughs> yeah, yeah, versus what is politically successful. Um, and so I, I, I think that's a really interesting question about what, what the right way to kind of handle it both politically and operationally is. Uh, my experience is that these kinds of incidents will put a ransomware group very firmly at the top of the priority list for political <laughs> reasons, regardless of whether that's actually the right answer from an operational point of view. Now, does it translate to changing the shape of those operations as well? I don't know. We'll see if there's big announcements in the future, I guess. Yeah, I guess we will see whether whether Lockbit has uh, bitten off a little too much uh, between, you know, ICBC, DP World, and a bunch of the other stuff that they've been getting with uh, with their Citrix bugs. Now, um, now one caveat, it's mm-hmm. not confirmed that Lockbit was responsible for right. DP World. It just looks like it because the same vulnerability was there. There's been, as far as I know, no official confirmation. Yeah, and I guess everybody has been out there using that Citrix bug, so it absolutely could be could be someone else. And yep. uh, you know, whoever it is, uh, you know, consider maybe that the uh, ASD hounds are going to be up in your business. So good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, 
speaking of making trade-offs between you know what's the right thing to do in what context and all the various other aspects of how we respond to cybercrime one of the other things you wrote about this week was there was some legislation that we had talked about in the uk that was attempting to kind of divvy up the costs of some financial crimes you know kind of between the banks and he wrote this week about a similar move in the u.s to kind of i guess almost front run the existence of too much regulation that might move liabilities around in the banking sector and we were talking before we were recorded about where those trade-offs lie between who can solve problems best and yeah. who is bearing the costs of these problems yeah so um this week reuters reported that a payment app in the states zell which is run by a number of banks, those banks are now going to refund what what they called imposter fraud. Um, And that is when a victim voluntarily sends money to a scammer under false pretenses. So they think that they're paying, I don't know, the government or they're buying something or they're sending it to a legitimate business and they send it to a scammer. So in the UK, that's called authorized push payment fraud so uh, previously in the states the banks did not have to refund that because the consumer the customer was voluntarily authorizing it Um, they they were just duped into doing it so the zelle payment banks have started to refund that as of the end of june this year and they just announced it And so this reminded me of the UK's scheme where essentially the UK payments regulator has said that banks, when it goes from one bank or one payment firm to another, the sending and receiving firm are responsible for half of the reimbursement each. And so this gives them equal incentives to crack down on fraud. And there's a number of Pretty interesting documents that the payment UK payment regulator released that looks at different rates of fraud amongst different banks. And they also do a cost-benefit analysis where they look at all the different arguments for and against this scheme. And it really struck me that the US banks were doing this in order to just front run the possibility of more <laughs> stringent regulation <laughs> and that the, the, the more stringent regulation was absolutely a good idea, <laughs> but, but the banks don't like it. And the way I thought about this is that any payment system, you're going to have some level of fraud. And so there's like a cost of doing business. And depending upon what, you know, compensating controls you have, you might be able to minimize this. And from a societal point of view, you want to do the best to minimize the overall cost. Uh, But what's happened without regulation is that the banks are minimizing their costs and they're kind of, in effect, pushing those costs onto consumers. Yeah, because you you want the people who can make changes necessary to a system to be the ones who are also bearing some of the cost whereas otherwise we end up in a situation like we have with environmental pollution where if you can just release whatever you want from your factory into the air and then the whole of the world bears the shared cost and you have no incentive to reduce your emissions or or scrub them to a problem that you don't face the cost of and that's you know we've seen it with how credit card brands will try and shift liability onto merchants the card brands are in a position to perhaps 
control some of the fraud, but the merchants end up paying the bill because they're in a you know stuck in an abusive relationship with Visa and Mastercard. Yeah, and and I guess an individual is really in a terrible position to decide if they're engaging with a fraudster, whereas a payment firm is in a much better position because they see many payments um, and they can see patterns. And if you encourage firms to talk to each other, that's even a better position because they can share all those signals. I hope that the US banking regulators maybe take something on board uh, from uh, the fun that the UK has had in in trying to make this more sensible. One of the other things you did mention briefly this week was a uh, write-up that Andy Greenberg had uh, with the kids who wrote the Mirai botnet. Yeah, yeah. It's just, I thought, a great story. It covers how they got into writing the botnet and how it turned into this kind of slippery slope where they started off using Mirai to drum up business for their own DDoS protection service. and Which, I mean, up... let's face it, is a long and proud tradition amongst DDoS mitigation firms. Yeah, that's right. And, <laughs> and, and then ended up being in a position to take down like a quarter of the internet. <laughs> and how they were tracked by the FBI, arrested, and then eventually kind of went straight i guess and now they've got jobs in uh finance and security research and it's a good story yeah it's nice to have a heartwarming story uh, at the (laughs) the end of the uh, end of the newsletter which is always an important thing we can't all be doom and gloom so thank you for that yeah um all right well that's about it for this week thanks very much tom and i'll talk to you again next week thanks a lot adam